0: Um, all right, dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. Um, we thank you for your care for us. Uh, we thank you for providing for us a home in heaven that you, at this moment, are preparing for us. And I pray that this, uh, I pray for clarity, pray that you would speak, and pray that this would be encouraging and hopeful. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is part two of a series called, uh, When Your Child Lives in Heaven. An everyday theology of eternity, and um, basic premise. Hey, basic premise um, of the class is: so I, ha- I have a child who lives in heaven, and um, and so in the year and a half since my child died, I uh, had noticed in Scripture how the apostles think about heaven all the time. It's very much on their mindset, very much a part of their daily consciousness, and uh, and and it has very strong implications for their, for their life here and now. Uh, it's not just uh, think of the future, but their consciousness of heaven influences them in the here and now in Scripture. And so, um, and so I found that to be true for myself. And the way that the apostles, you know, they lived with Jesus, they saw Jesus risen from the dead, and they saw him rise into heaven through the ascension, Um, I, you know, and so consequently heaven was a very real thing for them, uh, for me too. Heaven is a very real thing in the sense of I had a child, you know, who is living out his full life in heaven. And so I just think about it a whole lot more. And so I've seen how it impacts my life. And I've been in the class. What I'm doing is kind of paralleling how, what I've seen in scripture, the impact of thinking about heaven on their life, how thinking about heaven has impacted my life. So the first, uh, first part of the series, we looked at, what it means to seek things above. Um, well, yeah. What does it mean to seek things above? That's what Paul uh, calls people to do in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, uh, then seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so we talked about what does it mean to think about heaven, um, think about the second coming of Christ um, you know, on a daily basis. And for that to be a part of our consciousness as well, how might that influence us? We talked about how unique it is in Christianity that uh, Christianity is unique in that uh, there is actually that kind of a certain assurance of salvation, certain assurance in the afterlife. In most world religions, uh, salvation is based on your performance, whether you did more good deeds than than bad deeds. And so, whereas with Christianity, the question is, have you had your sins forgiven? Um, and so, you have. If, if the answer is yes, uh, you know, Christ has forgiven my sins, then you have a certainty of that of, of of going to heaven. And so, consequently, this is something that you can do. You can live in expectation, live thinking about um, about heaven. And so, today, what we're going to the, the t- next week, we're going to look at how it is that heaven changes you, how it sanctifies you, how it makes you into a person who's who's more charitable, more patient more kind, who wants to repent from sin. But this week we're going to talk about um, how it is that heaven, um, heaven gives us hope in suffering. How it is that thinking about heaven gives us hope in suffering. And you see, this is probably the primary time when the apostles are thinking about heaven, is as a comfort for suffering. And I'm going to start out here. I mean, you know, one of the things, this is probably very predictable, um, when talking about a kid who grew up in Mountain Brook, that I love black gospel music. Like, <laughs> love it. Very into it. And um, it, always, it always will make me laugh when I'm on uh, the reactions I get if I'm ever in a situation where I'm... Uh, like in a, an African an American church, when I can like name all the gospel singers and, and go back and name all these titles of spirituals and I can like talk major gospel game. And they're like so stunned <laughs> that this guy who's so, so white and can you know, has this like depth of knowledge about, uh, about gospel music. But I'm going to play this song. And what I want you to see in this song is how the singer, he, um, the speaker of the song, he is, has present suffering. His present suffering that he's wrestling with. But the refrain that he says over and over again is on my way home. So here we go. Let's give it up for the, uh, the Canton, the Canton singers. Or the Canton spirituals. If y'all want to clap, you're not going to hurt my feelings now, right? <laughs> Okay, I figure you all have had your gospel moment of the day. Um, but you can see, so this is a song where he's talking about sometimes I'm singing it with tears, sometimes I don't have friends. And like, what is he saying over and over again? I'm on my way home. I'm on my way home. So he has this very present real expectation and hope of heaven and uh, as a source of comfort in everyday uh, trial and tribulation. And so, uh, so here's the thing, is uh, Christianity, especially the New Testament, Talks a ton about suffering. Uh, if you think about the epistles, and those are the letters that you know, you have the gospels and then you have the book of Acts, and the gospels are about the life of Jesus, and Acts is about the formation of the early church. The epistles are kind of the majority of the books in the New Testament, and uh, they're either written by people who are in deep travail themselves, or they're written to churches that are being persecuted or suffering. So, 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Peter. Uh, James, Hebrews, and Revelation are all written with a central theme of comforting those who are in suffering. And so uh, the thing is, it's like sometimes we, you know, we think the norm is things are going okay, and then we have, you know, a bump in the road. But really, the norm in our lives is generally we're struggling, even if it's a small thing. You know, it's it's rare that we kind of have a time where everything's just okay. Uh, normally, either someone's sick or there's some conflict. Or there's some financial worry, or someone's in the hospital. That's just kind of the norm, and so you see that kind of reflected uh, in the way that Christianity speaks to the human experience. And so, um, so another thing too is when you look at these books of the New Testament, these these epistles, you see there are the more um, the kind of the, the more central suffering is to the book, or the deeper the suffering is that the speaker is in, the more references there are to heaven in the book. So Philippians, for example, very small book. Uh, Paul is in prison. I mean, he has been, uh, false, you know, falsely accused. He's just been yanked and thrown in jail. He's been beaten. Uh, he's been stripped of his clothes and just hung up naked in public. And now he's in jail and he's not really sure if he's going to live or die. He mentions heaven seven different times. Uh, in second Corinthians, where you have a ton of content about, uh, about heaven, uh, Paul says at the beginning of the book, that we despaired in life itself. we that, that's another way of saying we hated life. We wish we were dead. And it said we thought that we had received the death sentence. And so you see the deeper the suffering, the more reference there is to heaven. Revelation, we a lot of times just think about Revelation, last book of the Bible, which is, you know, has the most uh, eschatological or you know heavenly discussion. We think that's just you know, an end times prophecy for us. That that book was written to seven churches and the, the churches to which it was, that book was written, the people were, I mean, they, people were getting their heads cut off. I mean, it's like a it's like a scene out of ISIS today. Uh, I mean, people were just being killed just because they were a Christian for no reason. They pulled out of their houses and decapitated in, in the same way that was happening in Iraq and uh, around the Middle East and in Northern Africa and so on and so forth. And so... And so you see, uh, you know, what is, does what uh, John have to say? What is he wants to talk? What does he want to say to the church in, uh, the, the churches that he's addressing Revelation? He wants to say, hey, look, like, there's a better place that God is preparing for you. There's an end to all this. There's a day when the suffering will, will end. And so, so that's just kind of a little open introduction. So what we're going to look at today is how we're going to see how, uh, heaven offers, uh, hope, which a good way of thinking about hope is just the ability to get out of bed in the morning. And it also enables people to persevere, uh, to press on and, and put the next foot forward when they're suffering. Um, and so I'm going to look primarily at 2 Corinthians today and I'm going to identify five trends that you see in all the epistles. Sorry, I know that sounds, uh, when you hear someone say, I've got five points, you're like, holy cow, strap, put on your seatbelt, cancel. Cancel the golf game, but we'll try to, we'll try to work through in an expeditious manner. Um, but I want to start it with Romans 8, which is, this is a, you know for a lot of people, this is the most famous book in the Bible. And, um, and so in Romans 8, <coughs> Paul starts out and he talks about kind of some of the realities of being a Christian. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, and here we go, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so then Paul goes into this section where he's talking about Longing to be in heaven. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is also to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom. Of the, of the glory of the children of God. So I, I um, heard a, a pastor this week uh, talking about this text. His name is Ligon Duncan. He used to be the head pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. He's now the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. And he said, you know, why is it that Paul immediately jumps into heaven right after he talks about suffering? And he says, because you cannot handle life if you do not have a hope of heaven. You cannot... Life is so hard. There is so much difficulty. There is so much suffering that you would be crushed by it or you would be forced uh, to live in denial and hide from reality if you do not have this hope. And that's why Paul immediately goes into it. And so, um, so you know, so that's, that's kind of an interesting way to kind of intro. And so what we're going to look at here first is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and, um, and it's going to spill into chapter 5. And Paul is Paul has just been going through a lot. He's he's had a rough go to a point where people have started to question: Is is Paul? I mean, is Paul really a Christian? Like, is he really a legit apostle? Like, everything's going so bad for him. It just seems like maybe God is against him. Oh, holy cow! How about you? And um, uh, I think that's Charlie. I think he might be leaning on the lights. I thought that was the hand of God. Did I say something wrong? Did I say something wrong? <laughs> i 'm getting straight to the text no um, uh, and so paul is Paul is kind of working out the legitimacy of his of, of him being an apostle, but he's also too talking about the hope he has that has enabled him to walk through a period where he says that he despaired in life itself, and so first, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, to, all, to always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our body. So he's saying, like, we have gone through everything, but hey, we're still walking. Like, we still have hope. We're, we're, still, we're still persevering. It says, for we who live life are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal death, so, that, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So he's talking about this hope of, of being in heaven with Christ. For it is all for your sake, so that, we, so that as grace extends to more and more people, It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. We've got hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, so I'm going to stop there before I go into chapter 5. And um, and so the first thing, first point I would make is that the hope of heaven gives you a hope of understanding that you're going to understand all this junk one day. All the things that you're going through, all the difficulty that you're faced, difficulty that you're facing uh, that you just don't get, that makes no sense to you, one day you will understand it. Paul says that one day, uh, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. And then you see this reiterated in 1 John chapter 3. John says, "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is." And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this idea of when we see Christ, we will become like him we will have the mind of Christ, we'll have the will of Christ, and we'll have the understanding of Christ. And Paul, again, says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I lost this text. Um, But anyhow, he says, now... now, um, paraphrase. Now we see through a murky lens, but then we will see him face to face and we will, we will understand. And so uh, I think that for people in suffering, um, it is one of the most difficult things is understanding why these things are going on. Um, I, you know, why, why did my three-year-old child die? You know, we don't have a medical explanation for why he died. Um, you know, something I would kind of cry and lament, especially early on, was like, why does it have to be this way? Like, why is this my plan? I, I can remember getting to the hospital um, when I got the call that that he was dead, and I was like, I just, I never thought that I was going to be the cautionary tale. I never thought that, you know, you know the, you know those people that something really bad happened to them, and every time, you know, for, for the next 20 years, when you see them in the grocery store, you're like, oh yeah, it's just like in the back of your mind. Like, that's the, uh, that's the person who lost their leg in a car accident, or that's the person uh, you know, that's the person that has two stillborn children, or that's the person whose husband died of cancer when they were in their twenties, you know? And I was like, I never thought I was going to be that person. And, uh, and so there was this kind of confusion of why, why, why? And the thing I would continue to go back to is like, I'm going to get this one day. It's going to make sense. And even more than that, my child understands it now. Like Cameron understands this. He is not confused. He is not frustrated. Um, as, as someone in heaven, he, um, you know, and I'm not—I'm not sure that he necessarily is. Look, he's not like looking down on us, you know, watching the class day or anything like that. But, uh, but he has seen Christ in His full glory, and He is without sin. He has the wisdom of Christ, and so um, he, I think, probably sees things that God is doing through His life. Uh, you know, because Paul says in, in chapter one of Philippians that he who began a good work and you will perfect it on the day of Christ Jesus. So what God has begun in your life does not end when you die. It flows all the way to the second coming of Christ. There are waves and impacts that continue to go on. And so I think that he probably gets to appreciate that. And I think if I could have a conversation with him and say, I don't understand this, he would be like, don't worry. Like, I promise you. Like this, the, the return on investment is there. Like the good is outweighing the bad. And, um, and you'll get this one day, but you're just gonna have to trust me. Like this, this makes sense to God. And this makes sense to, to all of us up here. And so there's this hope that even though we don't understand now and we won't fully, we'll never understand in this life, there'll be a day when I'll get it and I'll be, and I'll be grateful. I'll be grateful. I won't have any questions. it will all be resolved. Um, the second, uh, the second part of this is notice uh, is um, a, a, a consciousness of heaven gives you a picture of just how short life is. I used to always say, especially when I was in my twenties, I was like, life is not short. <laughs> Life is really long. (laughs) Life is really long. Um, And then you talk to people when they're, they're, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s, and they'll be like, no, 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 life is really short. I can remember Limehouse the day after, Frank Limehouse the day after the funeral, he's like, he's like, look, man, you can't believe this right now. He's like, but in a blink of an eye, you're going to be 70 like me. And so, but especially, too, when you think about this, um, well, sorry, going back to the text, you know, how does Paul describe his affliction? He describes it as light and momentary. Light and momentary, okay? I mean, that's, you know, the, the, one of the Greek words for momentary is the equivalent to, like, the passing of a vapor. Just a, you know, snap of a finger, blink of an eye. And, uh, and you know, this is reiterated by, uh, in First Peter. P- some people call Peter the epistle of suffering. And in 1 Peter, he's speaking to these people whose backs are just absolutely against the wall. And he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. For a little while. Whereas Mary Matthews would say, Live it. Live it, it. Just live it. <laughs> um, and then again, um, uh, again in 2 Peter, he says, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir it by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Like, uh, the end of my life is soon. It's, you know, uh, it's it's not going to be that long. And so, if you start to, uh, I have found myself, uh, well, sorry, story at first. Uh, I used to have, I used to teach high school in the inner city. And I had this story, of this student, God bless him, Carlos V, he was a, member of the Charlotte branch of the King Crips and he liked to show off his gang symbol all the time in class. He liked to do that. It made me feel really comfortable. My safety was really good. <laughs> and, um, and so I had a rule. When you teach high school in the inner city, uh, when you teach high school in the inner city, you can't let kids go to the bathroom. They get one bathroom pass a quarter. Uh, because usually if you let a kid go to the bathroom, they're, they're gone, you know, they're not, they're not coming back. And so you give them one bathroom pass a quarter, sounds crazy, I know high school students are like, you're the worst teacher. Uh, but, uh, that, that way, if it was really emergency, then I'm like, okay, you you know, you, you gotta make it count. God bless him. Carlos, Carlos was not the most patient fellow. And the classes at my school were an hour and 15 minutes long. It was a A day, B day kind of class. Great, really smart, really smart. Uh, especially in the inner city. And, um, and so, uh, Carlos, with like five minutes left in class, he'd been in class for an hour and 10 minutes. And Carlos was like, I need to go to the bathroom. I was like, Carlos, you've used your bathroom pass for the quarter. Uh, and class ends in five minutes. And he just he would just walk out of the class. Just hit the road. I'd be like, Carlos, you do know that I'm going to write you up and you're going to get in trouble. And he had just hit the road. And it was just like, five more minutes, Carlos. I don't want you to get suspended. I don't want you to get mad at me because you flash your games all the time. But um, anyhow, uh, Anyhow, and uh, and it was just like so maddening and so frustrating. But like as I think about think about eternity, guys, like you may, you know, statistics say you maybe you'll live 75, 85, maybe 90 years on this earth. Like trillions of years in heaven, trillions of years in the restored earth. Okay, like that is a long time compared to another 50 years here. I, I when Cam first died. I was like, how am I going to live 50 years without my child? How am I going to go another 50 years without like, hugging and holding my child? And it was just was overwhelming. And the more I started, but when I would think about eternity and be like, I have, I have 50 trillion years ahead of me to be with my child in heaven and in the restored earth, it's, it's, it becomes more manageable. And, and it, really, it really kind of helps us to think life really is short. Like, this life is not that long, relatively speaking. And it, and it just kind of settles you down and gives you a hope to endure. Because when we want to just give up and check out, it really is a Carlos Fee kind of mentality. It's a Carlos Fee mentality but when we think in the relative scale. All right. Third thing uh, is comparison. Uh, the comparison of the struggles of this life relative to the joy and the happiness and the exhilaration of life in heaven. And you see, Paul says that in Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this life... Um, I consider... I'm so great at scripture memorization. Um, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of God. That is, that is to be revealed to us. And he reiterates this in 2 Corinthians. He says that God is preparing us for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond comparison, Um, and so basically, uh, when you it's it's kind of like again all you financial people are just going to love this class. It's a return on investment kind of thing. Think about the investment of the suffering of this life as compared to perfect bliss forever. Um, I uh, you know think about this too. Anyone here think traveling is kind of a hassle? You know, it's if you're driving somewhere. Packing up the car is really a pain. If you're flying somewhere, if, if, if you're married to Lauren Cole, you're going to get a flight delay. I never had a flight delay in my whole life <laughs> until I married Lauren. And now I can't fly without a flight delay. But if you're going somewhere really, really good, I mean, let's pretend that you're headed to Fiji for four weeks or you're headed to the Bahamas for a month. Or you're going to go ski in Vail for the whole month of December. I mean, hey, is packing the bags really that bad? You know, is, is, is packing the car that bad? Is the flight delay at the airport that big a deal? Not that big a deal. Um, and so it's a similar thing to, uh, uh, sorry, youth group story. One, one year, we just we felt this strong call to do this retreat that coincidentally ended at the U2 concert in Nashville. Uh, I mean, what a perfect summer for a worldview retreat, Right. <laughs> And, you know, we've never done it before. We haven't done it since. It was just the summer when you two played in Nashville, right? And uh, I can, we got, we just, it was like an act of God. We ended up, uh, uh, four, four of my students and I, we ended up in the inner ring. And that's a long story of how we got there. It's a great story. It involves a truck driver telling us to trust him. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, anybody sending your kids with me on a trip this summer? <laughs> um, <laughs> But we somehow weaseled our way into the inner ring. And then the guy, the truck driver, tells us, stand right here. And and we didn't understand why. But what happens is with uh, when you 2 plays, they have the main stage. And there's this ring that goes around it. And then they have this bridge that goes between the two. And the bridge rotates around. We were standing right where the bridge would stop. <laughs> so, like, Bono was... I could have touched his feet if I wanted to get thrown out. Um, I could have touched his feet. And, you know, the Edge would sit there and play, like, an entire song right above us. Okay? It was amazing. But we were sitting in... We couldn't get out of the inner ring. Once you're in, you're in. So it's July. It's Nashville. We're on a football field. There is no shade. The sweat content was off the charts. Junior high boys locker room kind of stuff. And, you know, you just, like, you wanted to... You wanted to check out. You wanted to just, all right, I'm just, forget about it. I'm just going to stay in general admission and I'm going to go get a Coke and some water and go to the bathroom. But we just kind of stuck in there. And then, I mean, it was an amazing concert. And then to have Bono and the Edge like sitting right above us, completely worth it. Completely worth it. But th- these are all like the vacation analogy and the U2 analogy are, are pitiful analogies because your experience in heaven will be greater than the best moment of your entire life on this earth, exponentially so. It will be so much better. And so consequently, it's, it's kind of like this idea of just um, of being able to endure the, the inconvenience at the airport or being able to endure sitting in the hot, sweaty sun, because you just know that the, the, the return on investment, the thing that's in store is so much greater than you could ever imagine. And thinking about that and remembering that and using your imagination and asking God for grace to give you an imagination to consider these things, it just, it, it, like Paul, it brings you to a place where you say, uh, you know, this is this is, this is is light uh, compared to what awaits me. So, all right. So, next. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. This, and keep in mind, you know, this was a letter. Paul didn't have, like, chapter 1, chapter 2. It's not a book. He was writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And so um, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says, "For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our, longing to put our heavenly, to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened." Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay. And so, fourth thing here is a consciousness of heaven uh, gives us a freedom from being afraid of death. Uh, Paul says, "I would prefer to be with Christ. That's where I want to be." Uh, he says in in, in First Cor- uh, sorry in Philippians. Chapter one. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. So this consciousness of heaven, when heaven is very real to you, uh, you come to a place where you're like, I, I would really prefer to be there. You know, life is hard. Um, and that's not. And, and by the way, I, I think that you, you know someone could hear that wrong in the sense of be like like hear that as a suicidal thing. Like, hey, I want to be out of here. I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Because Paul is emphatic. He says no. It's better for me to stay here. Like God, I, I can I can endure um, this this suffering that I'm going through. This depression I'm in right now. It's not that long. Um, and God has things for me to do. God has things for me to do here. He has people for me to love. He has ways to participate in His redemption. Only thing you can you can you cannot you can do on earth that you cannot do in heaven. You cannot share the gospel with anyone in heaven. And so this is not a yeah just check out kind of thing uh, fatalism, but it is a it, but it is a, it is a thing to say that it is a powerful thing when you are not afraid to die. It changes the way you live your life, um, and it is a hopeful thing because a lot of people. Uh, you know, they kind of live their lives afraid of dying. And I, I was about, about four months after Cam died. I was, uh, I was at Lifetime. Um, the kindest of thing, so my, one of my old swim teams, uh, they, they bought us a gift membership to this gym near our house, and it's been a complete blessing. Um, but the, my orientation there was uh, a a, a salesman who was trying to sell me personal training and sell me vitamins. (laughs) And he kept on saying over and over to me, expand your lifespan. Like, increase your lifespan so you can live longer. And after about a fifth time, praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit came upon me, because I was this close To reaching across the counter and choking him out while saying, I don't want to live any longer than I have to, pal. (laughs) I want my 70 years and I'm out of here. (laughs) Don't you understand? Anyhow, but, but, you know, um, but truly, I was, I, I wanted to, and I really should have taken advantage. I was too mad to take advantage of it in a constructive way, but I wanted to be like, do you really want to live that long? do you really want to live that much longer? I was like, I don't want to expand my lifespan any more than I have to. I, want, I mean, I want to live a full life. I want to be here as long as God wants me to be here. But this, like, clinging to this world? Like, heck no! Absolutely not. I'm not clinging to this life. Like, I am—I am I am, uh, I am grateful to be here. I'm grateful that the Lord has given me this life. I'm grateful for my family and for my friends and for my job at this church. And and for the things that God's called me into, I really am. But I'm not clinging to this world. Um, this world is tough, and like something that what awaits us is going to be amazing, absolutely amazing. So I, I'm not looking forward to like the process of dying. You know that would be that that would be miserable. You know, being diagnosed with something or being ill or the things like that. I'm not really, I'm not looking forward to that. But as far as like on the deathbed, I mean. Just show me where to sign. <laughs> show me where to sign because I know uh, that I'm going to see my child again. I want to be with him. I want to be with. I want to be with Christ. And so, um, you know, fretting over death uh, is is not not so much on my radar. Um, and that's a very empowering thing. And it's something that the apostles they were they, they were like they they wanted out of here so fast, but they were also very very committed to their life here. So I think that's probably important important to say, and by the way, Lauren and I went on a, uh, we went on a retreat uh, this past September, and it's just for families who have lost children. It's hosted by a woman named uh, and her husband Nancy and David Guthrie. And they lost two children. It's like it's the most awful story ever. Um, they, um, they had a healthy child, and then they got pregnant again and they found out that this child had a rare genetic disorder. and um, and that child, no no person has ever lived more than six months with that disorder. And so they gave birth to that child and that child lived six months and died. And so they were told that they had a 25% chance of if they had another child of that happening. And so they decided to have surgery uh, to prevent that from happening. And the surgery is 99% effective. Well, they were the 1%. They were the 1%, they got pregnant again, and then the one in four chance hit them again. And uh, and they gave birth to a boy, and that boy lived about five or six months, and he died as well. And uh, Nancy wrote a book called Holding On to Hope, which is, uh, and her, her daughter's name actually was Hope. And uh, it, and it kind of talks about her grief and wrestling with that. And they have the, he, she has one of the most profound ministries of really probably any woman in the United States. And she's a very she's a prolific author and speaker. And but they host these uh, these retreats for people who've lost children, so I was sitting in the kitchen with probably six of the dads, and all these people had lost children um, you know in the span of two years, some adult children, some teenagers, college students, some stillborn children, some um, some you know uh, situations like us with a toddler and so uh, we the conversation went to like heaven and you know clinging to life here, and every man was like. I am am not afraid to die. Like, I am am not putting that one off. Again, not in a fatalistic kind of way, but in a way where it's like uh, we kind of see the world for what it is and we see heaven for what it is and we're like eager to be with our children. And so, so there you go. Uh, It's a hopeful thing. All right, the last thing is, the final thing is this hope uh, for everything to be made right. Everything uh, for justice to prevail. And you know, Paul says at the end, he talks about um, he talks about how for you know, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, if you read that, you're kind of like, what happened to that whole uh, justification by faith, uh, uh, by by grace through faith thing that you guys have been teaching around this church for so long? And don't be confused. And this is. Um, you know, your, uh, Christ has been judged for you. Um, Christ has been any, any any of the bad that we have done in our life, um, when you become a believer, um, all of all of your sin has been transferred to Jesus. So not because of our performance as people, but because of Jesus' life and death on the cross, um, we don't have fear of the judgment seat. And so, um, but the, he, this is kind of a speaking of, of judgment, of, of like things that are wrong being made right. And uh, you see this echoed um, multiple times uh, by the apostles as they are just really, really struggling. First uh, Thessalonians, uh, they're being persecuted intensely. And you see uh, this promise of judgment, of, of things being made right. And, and then you see here 2 Peter 7 through 10, uh, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This, this you know, sound heavy here, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. Um, uh, but do not over. So, sorry, I'm going to come back to this. This sounds, you know, this sounds, you know, kind of the fire and brimstone, uh, wrath stuff that, that that people are very uncomfortable with. But one thing you need to think about is this. Think about if you are. A person right now. Uh, think if you're a mom in uh, in Iraq, and your husband and some of your children have been killed just because they're Christians, or think about if you're a parent and uh, you're a parent and your child was one of the children in Kenya, who the, when the terrorists came through the dormitory and they said, "Are you a Muslim?" "Yes." "Okay, leave." "Are you not a Muslim?" "No, I'm not a Muslim." "Bang bang." Think if you're a parent of one of those things. I I have no problem saying this. If I'm that parent, if I'm that mother, if the people who did that do not repent and turn away from them, I am totally fine with justice coming down on them. Uh, And But here's what Peter says. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So he's saying, like, hey, I know you guys are waiting for Christ to come back and make everything right, He says, the Lord, the Lord is not slow. Uh, He is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God, you know, I'm sure if you're that parent in Kenya, you're like, hey, God, why haven't you rectified this now? Why haven't you fixed this now? And you know what Peter says? Peter says God loves that terrorist and wants him to repent. God loves that terrorist and wants that terrorist to say, I'm sorry. I have done wrong. God, forgive me. And so that is why when we kind of are like, God, what, where are you, God? Do you see all the wickedness in this world? Do you see all the injustice? Do you know about human trafficking? Do you know about slavery? Do you know about, uh, about terrorism and all these kinds of things? The Lord is, is slow to, to rectify all that because the Lord wants those people to turn and be forgiven. And so, uh, and so all of us, there are things in this world that we all hate. I mean, I, when we, our, our little, our uh, youngest baby was in the hospital for, for four days with, our, you know, with the respiratory virus, it was not a big deal, it was back in January. You know, I'm on the, I was on the elevator with this family and they were checking out and they were so excited. And I was like, oh, wow, you're getting, yeah, you know, this is good. You've got your wagon, you know, and I asked, how long have you been here? And they're like, we've been here for 15 months. We've been here 15 months. Yeah, their child has cancer. I mean, don't we all hate the oncology ward at Children's Hospital? Don't we all hate that place? And 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 yet, it is a hopeful thing to know that God is gonna is gonna kill cancer. He's gonna end cancer, and that is that that will come when Christ returns. And so, and so, a lot of this talk of judgment we see in Revelation and uh, and and the Thessalonians and in Second Peter is disheartening. But know that like this passion that everything that is made right, that we want to see wrong corrected, we want to see uh, you know, sickness and death eliminated, that like, that is what flows out of the justice and the judgment of God, is that same passion that we have. And so last thing I'm going to say here, or I'm going to play, is uh, I'm, some of you are probably familiar with this song, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. It's an old hymn from the church, but it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, and he had um, his wife, and I think it was four children, were on a boat, and the boat sank. And he got a telegraph a telegram from his wife that said, saved alone. So he lost all of his children. And so he writes this song. Oh, Lord have mercy, that's tough. So he writes the song saying, you know, that it is well with my soul, like, I've, i have have I have I have I've grieved this. I'm in pain. I will always be in pain. But at the end of things, it is I'm okay. Like it is well with my soul. And here are the last two the last two verses. The, the, the second to last is uh, he talks about his salvation, about the forgiveness of his sins. But listen to what his the the kind of the conclusion of the song for him. He talks about the coming of Christ and everything being made right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Pray for us. All right, Jesus, thank you uh, that you've given this, this hope of heaven, and I uh, I pray that you would give us hope. Um, the difficult things we go through they they do not last long compared to the eternity we have to live with you in union with you. And um, and Lord, I pray that you would free us all from a fear of death, uh, knowing that you have conquered sin and death in your life. And I pray, Lord, that this would not lead us to despair a despair of, gosh, I just want to get out of here. But instead, Lord, that you would give us a sense of hope and purpose and ask these prayers in Jesus' name. amen. Amen.